Okay, welcome to UK Column. Very excited to be joined today by Fiorella Isabel, Eva Bartlett, and Vanessa Bailey, three extremely brave ladies working on the front lines of various conflict zones uh, in Ukraine and in Syria. So uh, welcome to the program, all. We're going to be talking today about journalism, what journalism is, what the ethics are around that, and so on. But before we get on to that, if we could just from each of you get a little bit of introduction about who you are and who it is you're working with and where you're working at the moment. But Eva, maybe if you could start. Uh, sure. Thank you. Um, I'm a American Canadian citizen. I grew up in Canada and I started doing journalism in a sense in 2007 when I went to Occupied Palestine for the first time. I spent eight months in the West Bank and I was blogging at the time. Um, and of course, nobody knew me, but I was I was doing effectively what I learned later, you know, is journalism. I was visiting places that were being either coming under Israeli forces invasion or other aspects of life under occupation. I was talking to people, I was taking their testimonies, I was documenting. But at the time, I was indeed blogging and I was new to it. So I had a lot to learn. But fast forward over several years, subsequently, I spent cumulative three years in Gaza from 2008 to 2013, during which time I was there during two Israeli wars in Gaza. So at, at some point, I started writing for Interpress Services, and then ultimately, um, I started contributing op-eds to RT. I think it was in 2013. So we all know the war on Syria started in 2011, and it wasn't until 2014 that I had the chance to go to Syria for my first time. And um, I, I was going to places that Western media were lying about, of course, and we were hearing a very different story on the ground. So I, I was writing for a variety of publications at that time and kind of honing my skills. All this to say, wh whereas I haven't attended any sort of journalism school, I've learned from years of experience in Palestine, Syria, and then more recently in the Donbass. And uh, so I guess just in summary, my areas of focus, whereas they started in occupied Palestine, as I as I grew kind of politically, I started to join the dots and realize this was all the same um, sort of battle in terms of uh, trying to overcome the lies of the West in, in um, areas that it had interest, whether uh, in occupations or overthrowing elected governments. And so in in my subsequent years, I've spent, well, in, since going to Syria for the first time in 2014, I've been there 15 times until uh, 2021, at very interesting times of its struggle against the West war against the Syrian people. And, uh, and then in 2019, I went to the Donbass for my first time. And over the course of last year into this year, I went back another eight times. Brilliant. Thank you. And uh, Feral... How did you get to where you are at the moment then? What's your history? Wow, that's a loaded question. Um, so I am Fiorella and I have a background in journalism, but I also studied actually in school public relations. And, and through that study of understanding how that's done is why I think I was so quickly able to see through the propaganda of the U.S. media because it is uh, it is just exactly that. It is a narrative management set of propaganda that is laid out to have the American public believe in a certain perspective and only in that certain perspective. All other perspectives get completely uh, vilified. And so, you know, whether it's the Syrian war that um, Eva just mentioned, 
or whether it's, you know, this conflict, this proxy war against Russia by NATO and the U.S., it's all going to be filtrated with a certain perspective in mind. But I started, in fact, writing more uh, more than uh, in front of everything else. I uh, was always writing, and that's something that led me to be really interested in the politics of where I decided to live, which was Los Angeles. And I started really focusing on the community that was struggling in Los Angeles, mainly that what has worsened into now an epidemic, the housing crisis, uh, so many people that are homeless and started uh, really talking to a lot of people, getting involved in why a lot of these people were unhoused and these domestic issues that plagued uh, the state, which is, I would say, the most corrupt state in terms of government, uh, with the Democratic Party being the um, the largest influence there. And uh, there was uh, government corruption. I started uh, studying elections and the el- corruption on elections and electing people and trying to go about this the electoral way and how people who were trying to change things from the electoral aspect ran into way too many roadblocks. And also seeing the ignorance of the people in terms of the world outside of our borders in the United States. And so that definitely propelled me to where I am today. I started going to Tijuana and looking at the reasons and the causes for migration, why people were coming in 2016, 2017 from Central American countries, particularly Honduras, Guatemala, And these countries, uh, and specifically Honduras, had been, of course, ravaged by U.S. intervention in 2011 with the intervention of uh, via Hillary Clinton, who was secretary of state under the Obama administration and the removal of their then president, Manuel Zelaya. And so I started really going into why people were coming across the border, what was the, the causes, the historical causes of interventions. Then I just started going to several countries and it didn't it wasn't um, until like 2019 and 2020 that I really started going deep into the elections of the United States at a more broader aspect in terms of how they are different from elections in other countries. And I definitely got my my badge of honor or dishonor, I would say, in being involved in the Bernie Sanders uh, contingent where I got to see firsthand how there was so much corruption that was just put in there and how little he fought back. And that was like the last American, I think, U.S. American uh, desire to to do a lot of things electorally. And since then, everybody just splintered off into massive groups. And you could you could really just see the dynamics of America. American politics, this microcosm that was that pretty much play out in what we're seeing today. And just uh, and then, you know, I just started traveling more, particularly in Latin America, where my family is Latin American. So uh, I really got to see a lot of the things that I was told, because there's also the same type of brainwashing in Latin America about certain leaders continue to be completely just destroyed by the reality that a lot of these countries suffering under sanctions, particularly Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba, the countries that we vilified the most are the countries that have actually most withstood 
the interventions of the United States. And uh, then, of course, I continued doing that. I launched an independent media outlet with my uh, co uh, co-host and business partner. And um, we just we had been talking and interviewing people, interviewing politicians, interviewing P uh, uh, politicians in other countries. And we wanted to really take it to an international level. And I think that's what all journalists should do is travel to the places they talk about, because it gives you a different perspective that you will not get anywhere else. And now I'm in Moscow and I've been to Donbass once and I, I hope to go many more times and I hope to go other places because I think there's just it's just not enough time in, in the day and I um, I'm really excited for for what's to come but I'm also very aware that the world is at a very tumultuous place and all I really wish to do is to have uh, a hand in helping at least uh, to try to get some information out before you know we blow ourselves up into smithereens. Uh, and Vanessa, okay, of course you are most most familiar to the UK column audience, but actually perhaps not very many people do know your history as as a journalist. So uh, just uh, just give us a little bit on that. Yeah, I'll just uh, sort of skim through it. Um, funnily enough, uh, I have the same background as Fee, which was in marketing, which I think does really give you an insight into how narrative management works and how stories are basically sold, how people are influenced into believing the narratives that the government wants you to believe. And, you know, I think we've all seen plenty of that in the last uh, 10, 12 years. My journey into journalism really started in 2012 when actually I met Eva at the uh, Rafa border crossing between Egypt and Gaza. Uh, actually, she got in. I didn't. I had to go back to, to Cairo that time. And then the second time, um, we also got spun from, from Rafa, but we entered through the tunnels, I think, about two days before Israel started the bombing in 2012. And then afterwards, I think Eva and I met up again um, by chance, actually, in Cairo. And through Eva, I got involved in really in the Syria issue um, because she'd established the Syria Solidarity Movement, as it was known then. And so I stayed in Egypt for quite a while, and I was covering events there, of course, which were pretty tumultuous, um, as Morsi had just been supposedly elected to, to governance. And then, of course, the protest uh, against the Muslim Brotherhood government continued. Friends were literally being shot in the streets, and their bodies returned home to their families in different sectors of Egypt. And then I had a, a kind of a short hiatus when I had health uh, problems. And in 2015, I tried to get into Syria for the first time, um, but it's notoriously difficult to, to enter. It's a war zone. They're very careful about who they give visas to, quite rightly. And so I ended up, I think the first time I entered was July 2016 with a predominantly, well, yeah, totally U.S. peace delegation. I was the only Brit on the delegation. 
we were very privileged uh, to meet with and have two hours uh, to speak to President Assad himself, but also to speak to you know faith leaders, civil society, uh, NGOs, ordinary people in the streets, businessmen, uh, academics, etc., to give us a real insight into what was really going on. And from then on, I don't know exactly how many times I went back to Syria, but I would say every three months until 2019, when in October, um, just before COVID broke, I came to, to live in Syria and I've been here ever since. But I, you know, I also, I guess I've also focused quite heavily on Yemen since 2015, when the Saudi um, aggression began in March 2015. Well, thank you for the introductions, everybody. What strikes me straight away, of course, is that all three of you are on the ground uh, at, at the coalface, as it were. There's, you're not relying on third-party evidence and you're not sitting in comfortable surroundings all the time reading about stuff or searching social media and so on. So I'm just interested to get begin by getting your thoughts on what journalism is and you know what, what we see in the mainstream, particularly these days, but also in alternative uh, independent media is people really doing almost third party journalism in the sense that they're they're reporting on what other people are saying and they're never seeing what's going on for themselves. So I'd just be interested to get your thoughts and maybe, I mean, feel free to, to speak to each other in this section as well on, on what you think journalism is and, and why or how, where the, the mainstream has almost lost its way on this? I think we are rapidly losing what I call real journalism, which is on the ground. I think even independent media is being overtaken, really, by... And, and this isn't a criticism, by the way. Um, of of the, the majority of those that are trying to do a really good job to get information out to people. But it is based, as you said, on, on third-party information. Whereas when you're on the ground, and I think Fee and Eva will agree with this, even your own um, preconceived ideas of what any particular conflict is about are not necessarily going to change, but they are enriched. And they, by being on the ground, you introduce multiple other complex layers that are not going to be seen when you're reading analysis from somebody else that also is not in the country. And yes, you can go through that analysis and you can take out your own ideas and so on. But in my opinion, nothing replaces that experience from on the ground because then you're speaking from uh, an empathic perspective that, that can't be reproduced by analysis alone. And unfortunately, I, I think this kind of journalism is kind of a dying breed. And I think that was also impacted by COVID when suddenly people couldn't travel anymore and it became actually harder, even if people did want to, to go and visit these countries to report on what was going on it became very difficult to move around. And in that time, I think the emerging kind of YouTube channels, independent media sites became quite powerful because they were the only voices that people could, could really listen to. And so I, I think what's important is for people to understand the difference 
between analysis you get from a studio somewhere in London, Washington, EU, wherever, even though it might be excellent, and the additional analysis you can get from someone that's really on the ground and is really experiencing, experiencing the events firsthand. Let me ask this question. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't been to, to any of these conflicts that, that you guys have been to, but I did grow up in Northern Ireland. So although that was extremely low intensity compared to Syria or Donbass or anywhere else, really, uh, looking back on, on my first 30 years there, I would I would say that it it would be hard to um, get an objective voice from local, whichever local community you were speaking to. So, how as a journalist, when you're in these places, do you actually what what do you need to do to, to get a, to, to get us an objective a viewpoint of what's going on there as as it's possible to get? I mean, I can try to answer that. Um, I think in 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 my experience it's it's kind of difficult uh as you said because a lot of the people that live there don't necessarily know what's going on in in the case of uh say uh, Latin America or let's say Cuba for example you go talk to people in Cuba some people in Cuba support the government and some don't and because some people see you know people have iPhones and cars just a few miles away in Miami and they have all of this this propaganda that is still in spite of in spite of the attempt of the the Cuban government to like help with that they have they have all of this this information that they get so some of them say oh you know we we would be so much better off in in Miami or, or than we are here you know and they say this or that so you get the perspective from those voices and you get the perspective from the voices that say no and then you use your own knowledge as an American, knowing what we have done to Cuba um, and over the 60 year plus uh, blockade uh, and embargo and sanctions and knowing what we've done to other countries, would these countries, would these people be better off had all of this resistance uh, not happened? I can I can say I don't think so, but I, I can't say that they are wrong to want something different because that is again many times the human psyche i find that to be true as well in russia and moscow you especially moscow you have people that are definitely more pro western including people i work with uh than than i am and and but they don't know what our country has done to them they they really don't know they don't know how the american government think talks about russia they don't know how the american government talks about russian people they don't have all of this information so in spite of the fact that there is i talk about that you know that dissent against this conflict where some of them think that they you know that you know this, this shouldn't have happened and blah 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 and they want to have good relations with the united states well you know there's that perspective but then there's the perspective of the people in in Donbass, where they know very well what they're fighting for, an existential war, because they are being exterminated by these Nazi and fascist-like forces on top of the fact that the U.S. is using the this idea of democracy to exterminate them. And so you have to put all these things together. And you can only put these things together in such a cohesive way, I think, if you are on the ground in, in this in this larger larger way. Uh, I'm not saying you can't have good analysis. I agree with Vanessa. It doesn't mean you can't have good analysis that you can't speak and, and know these things, but 
I think there there has been this trend that where we we get our information from third parties, from other sources that are not there. And almost influencers take that information from journalists that are doing the work on the ground. And they and they sort of do it for clickbait purposes. And oftentimes it's not even accurate. And so they they've sort of become this go-to sources when people who are on the ground are not those sources and they should be and they they should also have more more people coming on the ground right it's not a competition as to you know why is this person so popular and the person on the ground isn't well i mean that's just you know sometimes the way social media works but it's more so like these people aren't giving the correct information they're giving a one-dimensional analysis they're trying to connect the dots without really looking at the inner government workings the dynamics of of each uh section of the government and how they work the people and the differences of opinion within the people and why they think the way they think and i can say as somebody that really studied a lot about interventions and 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 you know and what's happening in latin america and what the united states and the cia the intelligence apparatus in general has done all over the world i knew all that going into these countries but once i was there i was able to apply that to the reality for example i came from full circle when i saw and met uh manuel zelaya who is now the the husband of the current president of Honduras and and spoke to him about you know what happened and and what he experienced that night when he was removed uh, via this coup and I had been studying years before that that particular intervention and that really just made it come full circle it really added a whole layer of of just okay now this is exactly what's happening and I met him because they were going to try to win this election to oust the U.S. backed narco government that had been uh, killing them for 12 years this is why more and more people are coming so I think I think in that sense I I, it's not necessarily an insult to people who are trying to just analyze. It's more of like you have to be careful with with the information that's just given and that the only sources you look for are third parties because you're not getting that enriched, that like super deep, dynamic analysis that you would from somebody who not not, not necessarily is there on the ground in this moment, but is, is also has been there and knows the people and has a wide knowledge of, of the current geopolitics in that country. If I can jump in and first of all, applaud you for everything you said, like um, brilliantly um, articulated. Um, I think none of us claims to have all the knowledge, all the information about, you know, every person in every region that we're reporting from or on. Uh, but there are some basics. And I think one thing she highlighted is that coming to whichever region, whether it's Palestine, Syria, Donbass, Latin America, with the knowledge of what our Western nations uh, have been doing or funding uh, in those countries, that that makes a difference because like Fee was saying, like uh, people on the ground there uh, might be very well informed, but they might not have that information. And so we having that information for example, Syria in early 2011, I think there was a lot of murkiness. People wanted certain political changes, but the overwhelming um, uh, sentiment there was not for the overthrow of their uh, 
frankly, beloved president. Uh, they wanted political changes. And yet the way that Western media was conveying reality, uh, reality in, in uh, quotation marks in Syria was that they were all rallying behind the overthrow of their president. president. And I think, Vanessa, perhaps uh, after this, we'll probably speak on um, the current situation in Syria, which is uh, kind of mirroring events in 2011. But there are so many examples from, uh, if, I, if I just want to look at Syria, Palestine, Donbass, for example, also Venezuela, but like um, the way, for example, in um, in these various areas where Western media will say it's Russia bombing Donbass or it's 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 the quote unquote regime bombing Syrian civilians, right? Or or in the case of Palestine, in the case of Gaza, for example, it's it's Israel retaliating against quote unquote terrorists. But if you spend time or live in those areas, you realize no, that's that's not what's happening. Um, in many cases, for example, when I lived in Gaza, there was nothing happening, and then suddenly F-16s were flying overhead and bombing nearby. In Syria in 2014, a BBC journalist, uh, Lise Doucet, after uh, uh, terrorists occupying eastern Ghouta bombed uh, old Damascus, as they were doing all the time, all over Damascus, not only old Damascus, she went on to produce an article where she said, locals believe it's the quote-unquote regime. And that's absolutely false. Anybody who spent any amount of time, including her, uh, at that time and in subsequent years, knew that locals knew exactly where those mortars and other missiles were coming from, and that was Eastern Ghouta, occupied by terrorists. There are other. There's another video um, many of us have seen on YouTube where Syrian locals are shouting at least to say, saying, "You're lying! You're lying! We know you're lying." So there, there are instances when uh, the, the people in question are very aware of the Western media lies, and there are instances when they don't have the information of how much. Our particular governments have been funding or, or arming or aiding and abetting terrorists or Nazis or, or the Israelis. One from 2016, you remember all, I'm sure, uh, in, in chorus, Western media were saying that Aleppo was being starved by the Syrian government. And then later, uh, Venice was on the ground in Aleppo when it was being liberated. And all the media in chorus were saying, and I just left there, uh, and they were saying in chorus that Aleppo had fallen. So again, if you had spent time on the ground and talked with people who were living under the bombs of these terrorists backed by the West, they might not be able to, to enunciate you know, precisely how much uh, um, funding the West had and, and when it started and all that. But they knew where the bombs were coming from, uh, and they knew that when the city was liberated, that, that they could finally walk freely. These are just some things to highlight, like, whereas there are some, uh, your reference to growing up in Northern Ireland and, and um, you know, it, maybe it being difficult to know which voice to listen to, it can be very complicated. But then when you come, as Fee was saying, when you come with the knowledge of what our governments have been fomenting and backing, then it's 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 easier uh to like to have this perspective of not and by me by no means i do not mean at all but to go somewhere and only only choose voices that are going to back that narrative because in contrast what i've seen western media do is completely ignore in syria in donbass ignore those voices that would that would say yes if, for example in the donbass we've been bombed by ukraine since 2014 this didn't start in february 2022 and on a delegation i went with one uh the, the only delegation i went with the donbass in in march of last year i later saw mainstream french media exactly state that they 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 sorry exactly do that they they disappeared the voices that would have otherwise said 
We've been living under Ukraine's bombs since 2014. They completely ignored the site where 21 civilians were slaughtered uh, in March last year. Um, and they ignored the eight years of Ukraine's war, simply uh, producing reports that said, like, oh, Russia is pretending, basically is what they're trying to say, it's handing out humanitarian aid. Whereas if you actually spoke to the people in the areas where Russia was handing out humanitarian aid, they would have told you if they if these media had cared to actually honestly report, yeah, we didn't have food because the Ukrainian forces were bombing us and we couldn't leave our basements. Or in the case of Duma in Syria, we didn't have food, or in Madaya, or in Aleppo, because the terrorist forces that were occupying our areas were hoarding the food. So there's many like common themes that I've seen um, where uh, having this information, knowing how the West operates media-wise and the way they fund and arm uh, the various terrorists or Nazis or what have you, it is beneficial to being able to actually, you know, know to, to report on the ground. Obviously, you're going to report if you meet somebody who believes the opposite, fine, report that. But the overwhelming majority are going to stay state. Um, you know, d depending on what the subject is, they're going to say things that are not allowed to be said in the Western media. What you've just said raises a number of really interesting points. We began by discussing what journalism is. And you've just, Eva, you've just said you have witnessed journalists lying in their reports from war zones. And so I'd like to look back, look again at this question of what journalism is, because, of course, all three of you have been on the receiving end of accusations from so-called journalists, you know, real journalists, uh, mainstream journalists, that you're not journalists and you're just bloggers and or whatever it happens to be. And, and my question, based on what you just said, is why would you want to be describe yourself as a journalist? Because it seems that the only role that a journalist has, particularly a, a, a journalist on the international scene and, and, and looking at conflict zones in particular, the only job that they are doing is creating a predetermined narrative. And they don't really care how they go about doing it uh, or who they hurt in the process of doing it, so long as the report that goes back to the to their employer is the one that the employer wants to see, whoever you might say their employer actually is at the end of the day. If I can just jump in, because a few things were kind of running around in my head after listening to, to both Fee and Eva, who, of course, you know, are completely aligned with, with how I think about the job we do. And I think Eva touched on a really important point you know, we always get accused of a lack of objectivity, and you mentioned objectivity. We always get accused of bias towards the Kremlin or towards the Syrian government or towards President Assad. But the reality is we're actually fighting the bias from the entire global media complex in the West, right? So our job, in, in my opinion, and yes, I mean, I, I will clearly say I have a bias in that I'm against imperialism, I'm against Zionism, I'm against the oppression of people by the West. Like, I see my job as being biased at, against the inhumanity in my government in the UK and its allies whether it's NATO member states or, or EU states, whatever, th that's what I perceive my job to be. So I don't go to Syria, I don't go out in the streets and look for someone that's going to confirm my narrative. I don't actually need to look very far. As Eva said, the majority of people are going to confirm my narrative because those voices that are in reality the majority in Syria have been silenced and disappeared 
by Western media that are nothing more than an extension of security agencies of their respective governments, in my opinion, for, for the entirety of the war against Syria designed to destabilize the country and topple uh, the Syrian government, partition Syria up into sectarian statelets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, even when I look back on all the stories that, that we've all covered, whether it's the Hula massacre, whether it's Aleppo, whether it's uh, Eva, as she mentioned, Madaya, Ghouta, Homs, it's the same playbook every single time, right? And if we were not on the ground, then that is the only information that people would receive. And this is a really important point. I remember being in Aleppo in those final days of liberation. And I remember the UN um, and Owen Jones for The Guardian putting out this hideous story that the Syrian Arab army were raping the women in the areas that had fallen, in inverted commas, to the Syrian Arab army. I was on the streets. I was watching Syrian Arab army soldiers carry old ladies down from the top of the house to the bottom and help them with their bags onto the evacuation vehicles. I saw Syrian Arab army soldiers whose homes they were returning to in East Aleppo after the five years incarceration of civilians by Western-backed and Western media-promoted terrorist groups. So, you know, this was real-time exposure of the lies of the media. And that's almost impossible to do if you don't put yourself on the ground. You can, you can surmise that the media is lying and you can pull together information that, that kind of um, uh, helps your argument. But you, un until you're actually there on the ground and you're talking to people on the ground and you're witnessing the location of these alleged attacks, even we can talk about the chemical attacks, for example, until you're there and you're talking to people and you see the layout of the land, you understand what buildings they're talking about, et cetera. I, I don't think you can put together a complete story. That's, that's just my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, again, with your Aleppo example, the Western corporate media that did Channel 4, for example, and BBC that did go to Aleppo, um, if they had gone to the Eye and Children's Hospital, uh, Children's, sorry, Children's and Eye Hospital, I can't say that properly. <laughs> the complex, the hospital complex, composing the yeah. children's <laughs> ward and the eye ward. If they'd gone there, they would have. Uh, if they'd gone there um, and and done proper journalism, they would have seen the the prison, the torture chambers uh, below ground. You know, and they would have seen the Sharia court where people were tried. But without that, or or the uh, Quds Hospital, that everyone, including um, the the so-called human rights group, what was it? I think Doctors Without Borders were endorsing the narrative that. Syria and or Russia had reduced to rubble that building, right? And it wasn't. You went there first. Pierre Lecorvo went there. Eventually, I went there, and it was intact. It was it was damaged for sure. But then inside, you would have seen the terrorist insignia, uh, the terrorist logos. Um, and without, you know, like you're both saying, relying, like you're all saying, relying on third parties that don't have that information or don't wish to publish that information. You never know that. And so that changes the whole narrative. Why would Syria and or Russia bomb a hospital? Well, it's been turned into a legit terrorist headquarters and it's not being used as a hospital, for one thing. 
and that was that was prevalent throughout Syria. So yeah, um, and uh, just Mike, back to you. I, I would like to hear from Fee, but um, yeah, there are, there are many many instances that would take. I, I think all of us could uh, give more examples to where uh, that would take quite a bit of time where um, Western corporate media journalists were in a place where they could have re- reported the overwhelming narrative of what was happening. For example, Venezuela 2019, when when the West was had orchestrated an electricity uh, crisis in Caracas pre- predominantly, and they were trying to p- portray the whole area as being in a state of chaos. But I was there and uh, yeah, they were lacking electricity because it was what was believed was the, the West had uh, orchestrated this power outage. But people were, for the most part, um, supporting one another and there was massive support for the government. But the media wouldn't support on that. They sorry, report on that. They, they'd report on uh, trifling um, support for Guaido and the opposition, but they wouldn't support. They would sorry, report on these massive demonstrations that went throughout the streets of Caracas. So uh, there, there's just, I think, too many examples of them cherry picking uh, narratives. Even in uh, 2017, I was giving a lecture in, I think I was in Ottawa or Montreal, and two Canadian uh, journalists uh, with Canadian Western corporate media, like La Presse and Radio Canada, attended and they went on to, one of them went on to write a smear of me. Well, fine, that's fine. I don't care what they write, but they were in an audience that was predominantly Syrian, predominantly um, Sunni Muslim Syrian, also Christian Syrian. And they didn't want to hear from anyone except those who might support their narrative that, you know, that Assad was allegedly hated and the Syrian people wanted to overthrow him. And I literally had people tugging on my sleeve saying, you know, we want to speak to these journalists and they wouldn't, they wouldn't have it. They wouldn't give them voices. So as Vanessa was saying, they were disappeared. Uh, and that's how, that's how it works. Uh, those narratives that don't fit, that don't, uh, back up the agenda, whatever particular narrative, uh, the West is putting forth, they just, uh, these voices get disappeared. So Pirala, I'm keen to hear what you think about this as well, but I'm also keen to, to try to get some kind of understanding about whether your experience leads you to believe that, that these journalists are doing this because it's what they believe, or they're doing this because they are basically, I can't really think of any other way to put it, than, than corporate whores that, that are, will do anything that their paymasters ask them to do. I mean, it, what's the motivation for the lies is really what, I, what I'd mm-hmm. like to get some thoughts on. Yeah. So just to address what they just said, it's absolutely true. I mean, I can think of several instances. Um, One, when I was in Nicaragua during their election, re-election of the current president, basically we were there with several independent journalists and we were all reporting on how well the elections were going. And specifically me and my co-host Pasta or or Craig, uh, we've studied elections and we know the mechanisms of, you know, like, for example, what makes an election a valid election, like from, you know, chain of custody to like how public, uh, if they have public counting to the to the point of like, if, if papers are used, what forms of mechanisms are used to verify the elections. Nicaragua is among the top. I think Venezuela ranks number one. But Nicaragua is up there. And so the United States government constantly talked about the the dictatorship of of Nicaragua and how, you know, they need to spread democracy in Nicaragua. And they've tried many, many times. And after the uh, attempted and failed 2018 coup, they were really afraid of this election. And 
And so we were in Nicaragua and we were documenting how there was, for example, things that you don't see in the United States, machines working properly, a few lines, people, people being their IDs being verified, but everybody has IDs there. It's, you know, it's a developing nation, but somehow they managed to give everybody an ID, something you can't do in the United States. Uh, in fact, they, they make it so people don't have IDs in the United States. And so they were, they were doing all, all of the things required to make a, an election legitimate. And then of course the New York times comes out Oh, they've closed down polling stations. Everything is terrible in Nicaragua. And we're there live reporting, completely saying the opposite of what they're saying from an office somewhere in New York that they're nowhere near Nicaragua. And that was one of the things like they were saying they weren't allowed in and that all these things that they were allowed in. They're just looked at suspect because the people of Nicaragua know who these people are they they're very aware of what the you know the the western media has done and how they flip things and how they turn things around but they weren't interviewing any of these people in Nicaragua who were so excited to reelect their president i saw the same thing in in uh, Honduras i've seen the same thing all throughout latin america it just it, they don't report on something that could make the United States look bad or look like the narrative that is being said uh, isn't valid. So that that would invalidate what their that what their you know bosses or whatever are saying. And the reality is, you ask if they actually believe in what they're doing. I think it, it really depends on the position. You have a lot of up and coming you know journalists that are new, and they go into journalism, just like some people go into politics with this idea that they're going to change the world and, and shed light on things. And then they are met with a, a very hard, uh, hard reality where they, they're they basically discovering that, no, that you're only allowed to write certain things, that you were only hired because you didn't have connections to these anti-establishment groups that because you didn't, you know, you don't seem like an anti-establishment journalist that you've been walking the, the line very well. You haven't been coloring outside the lines. And so, you know, that's why you were hired and you're not getting, and you know, and you need a job. So you're going to, you, they expect you to comply or they'll find another you, they'll replace you very easily. And so people are met with that decision. And that decision is more of a philosophical one and, and one related to moral, your moral uh, compass than anything to do with journalism. Because if you're met with this decision where your values are completely trampled on and then you continue to stay there, well, you know, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, judge you too hard, but I, I mean, that's essentially what we have. I, you know, we have some people that have said, all right, whatever, I need a paycheck. And then some people that genuinely have been brainwashed because this is how it happens in school. You're brainwashed to believe these things. Most of my um, millennial, you know, millennial age group of friends have zero idea what their country is doing. And most, I mean, any engineer that any student that graduates as an, uh, with a degree in any type of engineering will end up working for a defense contractor at some point because that's all we do. That's all we produce. We produce weapons in the United States. So it's really not, it's almost like, it, I think some people don't even realize that they're living in this. I'm sorry for the the lack of a better term matrix, right? They, they're living in this alternative reality that isn't real. And they're just 
in there, they're, they're, they're getting told you're doing a great job. You work for CNN. Wow. Everybody wants to work for CNN. Everybody wants to work for the New York times. You get all, you get hailed as, as a success story by not just your parents, but by this, the entire world, the entire media schools, they all, they're all happy. You're working for Lockheed Martin, Boeing. You're working for all of, oh, wow. You must be so successful. Look at you. And so that is basically how they're shaped to believe. So everybody else has to be wrong because there is that saying it's easier to lie to somebody than make them realize that they've been fooled. And and that's just how it keeps working. I don't think that every single journalist goes in there, you know, hating Russians or, or hating, you know, ev- everybody that's a supposed socialist or whatever it is, the boogeyman that they want, you know, they want you to focus on. I think it's more of like, they're shaped that way. And, and the people who are, who have the qualities to continue being these uh, cogs in this propagandist machine are promoted. And the people who, who are not like that, they're pushed aside and called, you know, oh, you're not a good journalist. You're this, you're that. And so that's how the Western society functions. You can't be a dissident. Being a dissident makes you unqualified, less intelligent, less successful. And, and that's your scarlet letter that you carry around. And it, it's not fun. So I don't know why we do it. I don't know. <laughs> Um, If I can just mention really quickly an experience I had in, I think, 2017 in Iraq, which perfectly exemplifies this, what we've been talking about. We'd gone with a, to a conference actually in Iraq. We were staying at the, the green zone, which was pretty awful. And actually when we came back late one night, we weren't allowed in. So we were suddenly, I, I think 15, 16 foreign um, delegates just abandoned on the streets of Baghdad because we'd come back after pumpkin time to the American-controlled um, green zone. But that's a by the by. <laughs> but I remember um, being taken to meet with um, the sadly assassinated Abu Mohammed Mohandas, who was then the leader of Pasha al-Shabi, the, the popular mobilization forces that were responsible for the defeat of ISIS inside Iraq. And I remember there were, I think, around 15, 16 of us, some with RT, some independents. Pepe Escobar was there, various people. And there was one journalist from AP, Associated Press. And she kept asking very pointed questions to Mohandas. And he was just looking at her with this very kind of wry smile on his face. And at the end of it, he said, I know what you're trying to do. And I'm not going to give you the answers you want to use as quotes in in your pre-designed article. And when she left, she basically published an article. She, she totally distorted what he had said to fit into the narrative that she had been instructed to produce from Iraq, right? And, and the only funny thing was because there were 15, 16 other independent <laughs> journalists or, you know, certainly not biased against um, PMU um, journalists, we all jumped on her. Uh, on social media and so on when she produced the article. But I think, you know, that just gave me a very clear insight into what a lot of these young journalists are being instructed to do. They have a remit. Now, whether that remit comes from the media outlet itself or whether it comes indirectly from the State Department or the UK Foreign Office via their security agencies, I think more and more 
Western media is becoming infested with what are effectively spooks. Their major journalists are, in my opinion, um, ones like Lise Doucet, uh, Martin Shulov for The Guardian, Karim Shaheen, many of whom were brought in in 2012, so one year after the war against Syria started, um, are working directly with the intelligence agencies. And I have written about this because I, I have kind of traced their movements and, and they couldn't have gone where they went and spoken to the people they spoke to if they didn't have high-level protection. Yeah, and uh, also the then when they go on to smear uh, people like ourselves, they rely on bodies that are State Department affiliated or whatever, MI6 affiliated or whatever. And I know we've all had that experience, um, all of us, for our reporting in various areas. Uh, last year, the CBC, so Canada State Broadcasting, did a, a really crappy uh, smear on me uh, where they had to actually use spooky music to make me look to be such an evil character. Um, but the I won't go too much into depth on that, but the, I guess the two points to note on that is uh, now I forget the body. It's, it's a body that's been quoted in other um, smears of journalists regarding reporting on uh, Donbass or Ukraine's war crimes. I'll have to look uh, for that name. But anyway, it, it's, a, it's a State Department affiliated body. So they they quoted some expert from that body to um, incriminate me as being this evil propagandist. But they also drew explicitly from the Ukrainian Miratvoritz uh, site, which is commonly known as the kill list uh, because it lists the names and um, addresses if they have it and as much information as they have on the person that they literally want assassinated. And when, um, as we've seen from like 2014 or 15 on, uh, people are assassinated, notably including Ukrainian journalists and activists and civilians. Uh, they are marked as liquidated, um, including more recently last year, Daria Dugina, and then into um, this year um, with the killing of the, um, the the war correspondent. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. But in any case, the CBC drew on the Miratvoritz entry on myself um, in their smear. And again, I won't go into too much detail on the smear. It was pretty pathetic. But the point being, this is just goes to show how far not only independent journalists that are towing the line, but the state media themselves. And Vanessa, I know you could speak at length <laughs> to being harassed and, and um, smeared. And Fiorella, I'm sure you as well, by uh, American and British uh, media uh, representing the state. But it's just, it's there's so many clear examples of them um, not only towing the line on the narrative, but also then drawing on um, sources, whether they're like Al-Qaeda in Syria or Nazis in Ukraine, and also um, intel agencies masked as uh, you know human rights groups or um, independent so-called uh, sources that they then go on to cite to defame journalists. Yeah, Vanessa, I'd like to get your thoughts on this a little bit, because obviously Eva's alluded to it, but the BBC, in my opinion, crossed the line uh, in their attack on you when they decided to publish a photograph, in, including uh, the number plate of your car, on a global website, effectively, because bbc.co.uk is effectively a global website. That was that was crossing a line ethically in the sense that, that uh, without question, that was putting and had the intention of putting your life at risk 
you know, this is something that is is more widespread than than you personally. But I, I don't think there's any one of the three of you that would disagree that that was crossing a line. Yeah, and and I think you know, I mean, um, I, I guess we've we've all had similar experiences. I mean, I know for certain that my six hour detention that he threw was definitely connected to the BBC because the information they were using came from. Um, a sting operation carried out by a seizure that are allegedly investigating human rights abuses by the Syrian government. Now, now just, just, just so that for people that don't know, you were arrested by anti-terrorist police at Heathrow. Yes. Um, for the first time I'd come back to the UK since COVID kicked off, actually. And, you know, the questions that were being asked came directly from the dual sting carried out by this organization that is allegedly investigating human rights in Syria and that was basically supported by the same journalist that had attacked me extensively, even including a 15-part audio uh, series called the Mayday, um, Mayday series. And so, therefore, yes. I mean, this, in in my opinion, this was a harassment campaign. It wasn't it wasn't journalism. And of course, when when you see um, people like David Miller being hounded out of the university um, by the the Zionist lobby and so on, this is what it is. It's it's a hate campaign. It's a harassment campaign. I remember when Eva was in Donetsk. And Louise Mensch, who's a kind of social media influencer, basically doxed her to the SBU on Twitter. And I think it was the next day, Eva, that the hotel you were staying in was was literally bombed. And of course, there were other journalists staying there. So, you know, this is this is a consequence of the work we do. And I would actually like to point out that while mainstream journalists are completely covered in whatever uh, conflict zones they're in, they have a team, they have um, backup, they have fixes, they have cars, they have insurance, <laughs> they have an entire um, media complex behind them, like, for example, the BBC, that if they're injured, they're going to be airlifted out of there, right? Um, they have flak jackets, <laughs> they have helmets, they have everything laid on for them. Fee, Eva, and I are going by taxi, even I remember the the kind of perilous journey. And I think it was August 2016 when Aleppo was still under occupation. And we were like being told by various checkpoints to just floor it through certain areas because they were being shelled and and sniped and so on. Um, We don't have any protection. We don't have any insurance. If we get injured, I actually have no idea what what I do, I guess we'd be picked up by local people and taken to the hospital and taken good care of. But we don't have the level of of incredible support that those journalists have, right? Um, and, And I think that's something that people overlook and don't fully understand, that we are literally choosing to not only put our own lives at risk, but then also have our lives put at risk by the journalists that don't like what we're saying, or not necessarily the journalists, but but the the institution, uh, media institution that doesn't like what we're saying. Yeah, um, the that that's a point in terms of the lack of support. That's a point I hadn't fully considered myself. Because, you know, we all just do our thing um, because the we're driven to do it. And I think that's a major 
difference. Um, this is not like a holier than thou kind of comment, but it's just like it is a drive. It is a drive within all of us to we're compelled to go to the places and uh, report on the various issues we do. Uh, I would say not out of um, interest in uh, advancing career. Heck, if we wanted to advance career, we'd take the opposite approach. But I hadn't really considered like the the, the support issue until some years ago when uh, in, in Western Canada, I was giving a lecture and a, a journalist who'd been a producer with some uh, Western, some Canadian corporate media, uh, but stopped and Anyway, he had great politics and he just he pointed out, he's like, hey, you know, like journalists who go to the areas you guys go to, they have the support team that do the logistics, that book the airfare, that book your flights, that pay for your flights, that get your visas, that do the research, that write your scripts. <laughs> like none of that, of course, especially the script writing would we want. But I hadn't really considered that uh, because, I mean, that's a minor point. What Vanessa is highlighting in terms of the risks and lack of certain uh, uncertainty, lack of support, whether we were to be harmed or worse. That's certainly uh, more worrisome than just the fact that we have to do everything, you know, all the logistics ourselves. Regarding the hotel bombing, I, I want to be clear. I definitely don't feel like I I, I can't say whether I was targeted. I don't feel like I was. It does coincide some days after Louise Mensch uh, did say, hear that, Special Forces Ukraine, um, regarding me being, like you were saying, Vanessa, um, in the in Donetsk. But uh, it was a hotel known to house many journalists and various hotels in Donetsk and around housing uh, journalists reporting on Ukraine war crimes have specifically been targeted. And this particular day, the last two of five shells, the first round of shelling that morning landed 50 meters and then directly next to the hotel. So it seems like given they were pre precision uh, Western artillery, that it was mm, probably likely uh, Ukraine uh, targeting a hotel known to house journalists. But whether or not that's the case, even somebody still was prepared to target you in the sense of, of outing you where you were. Whether that particular attack was a response to that or not, the, the potential was still there that there could have been some response. Absolutely. And, you know, thank you, Vanessa. Thank you, Fiorella. Thank you, others who on Twitter came out and and George Eliason, American investigative journalist based in Lugansk region, uh, for 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 calling out uh, Mensch's uh, horrible intent. She she backtracked and tried to say, no, no, I just meant like I wanted them to arrest you. But then as Vanessa pointed out on Substack, well, that's not exactly what they're known to do, you know? And recently, uh, I don't follow her, so it's not like I obsess about what she has to say about me, but someone tagged me on Twitter in um, a week or two ago and she's she because i had been mentioned she she and and the, the the context of last year was brought up she then said oh no again i just want i want special forces ukraine uh to arrest her and, and you know put her away lock her away and even if even supposing that was what they actually do which as vanessa pointed out that's not their role the role is far more insidious She's she's calling for me to be locked away for my crime of going to the Donbass and interviewing civilians under Ukraine's bombs. I mean, that's pretty uh, pathological and sick. We're almost out of time, but Fairla, um, both well, all three of you have experience to some degree or other of working with RT, um, and of course, all three of you are on the receiving end of accusations of being, you know, effectively mouthpieces for Vladimir Putin personally. And so I'd like to get some insight into what it's like to work for RT and, and what what editorial 
uh, demands they make. So, Farrell, we ha- let's hear from you first. Yeah. Okay. So, um, geez. So, I for RT, I have had before I worked for RT, I've had the same point of view, especially regarding uh, Russia, Ukraine, regarding NATO. I I didn't. I was one of the people speaking out against Russia Gate, uh, that n- nefarious <laughs> propaganda that still it's still going on i mean that that basically tried to say that you know hillary clinton lost the election due to russian memes and it, it's essentially what it said and so it, it it's just ridiculous to make that connection that because i work for rt i'm suddenly you know now uh just my thinking is irrelevant it's also very insulting it really just it really just says that you know we have no sort of um self uh thinking mind that we just follow whatever we're told which is actually the opposite of of what we do because if we wanted to be told what to do we would be working for mainstream media and make a lot of money so if if that was the the motivation then we you know that's where we would be and and it, it's come not just from, you know, the regular mainstream media sources, but from people who like to be holier than thou in the United States and say, no, but, you know, uh, Russia is a, a warring country. And so therefore you your credibility is shot because blah, 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 blah. I thought it was a great opportunity um, to be again, because I think about being in the places I am going to talk about to be in the place I'm going to talk about. And I've talked a lot about Russia and about what what it's like living here in comparison to what we're told it's like my whole life what i've been told russia is and who the russian people are is completely different and i knew that as we said going coming in here but it's another thing seeing it and living here and and really having an entirely different perspective as well as an opening gate into the east and into new developments happening with BRICS and all of that. I think that's amazing that that's happening. And I'm very excited to be here in a moment where this is the epicenter of a lot of things uh, that are happening. What what we're seeing with the world and where it's going, it's no longer the West. The Russians don't really have, to, they don't care about, you know, playing good with the West as much as, as they did before. And, and I think that's because now new economic opportunities have opened up and at RT, we're Working there, that perspective is basically what's being focused on. In terms of what the focus is, it's mostly away from the United States and and the West and Europe, and mostly focused on Africa. What what's Africa doing? What are the developments there? What are the developments in and the Arab world and West Asia and the Middle East and uh, in and China? The developments in India, what's going on there? That that's pretty much what the the focus is where I work in the particular branch of RT International, which is English speaking. There are other branches. There's RT Arabic, there's RT uh, Deutsch, there's RT France, there's RT Spanish, and they each have their own focus. What I found to be most challenging coming from an independent journalist uh, mindset is working with so many cooks in the kitchen, working with uh, producers editors and 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 then you know everything in between um young people who really don't know anything about news who are just getting their feet wet and and you know doing dealing with that 
it can be, it can be daunting sometimes. I think that the, you know, and, and working for, you know, a national, uh, international news agency is going to come with that. It's going to come with, you know, okay, well, I wish we covered this subject more, but you know, they're covering this subject. And, uh, as far as editorial, I mean, it depends on what you're doing. If you're presenting the news, there's definitely, um, you know, the main stories are going to be covered, especially leading with Russia, obviously, everything that's happening here and what's happening in Donbass is at the top of the food chain when we're, when what we're talking about when it comes to what we're talking about. And, um, then it's like Africa. Now it's anything in Asia, anything related to multipolarity. That's kind of what, uh, the focus has been. It's a lot less on the American end because of course, Russia, um, RT is banned in, in the United States essentially and in Europe. So it, it, that's what it's been. And I, I think when you're presenting, you, you have some, you know, if I don't, if I'm uncomfortable with something and I fight for it, I say, I don't want to say this. There are things I won't say. And those things are particularly related to uh, Israel, Palestine. Um, I am a hundred percent anti-Zionist and I, I, I don't think covering the conflict equally is covering the conflict equally because because it's not an equal situation it is a situation with apartheid and occupation and an open air prison versus you know somebody doing that with western weapons with us billions and billions of dollars so that's something that i'm I'm very passionate about but there are people who think otherwise you know and it's kind of that's been the most challenging i think aspect in, in that regard um and when it comes to corresponding you have more, uh, you're able to write your stories more. You're able to, to, if you're reporting in certain places on the ground, you're able to report those, like what you're seeing, what's actually happening. And I do prefer that aspect of what I do because I, I think that's more close to what I was doing before. And I think it's, it's, it's something that really allows me to be more, um, more in, in, in it, in terms of what, you know, what things are, I prefer being on the ground than being in a studio. Um, and a lot of the times I end up in a studio, but I just, for me, it's like, you know, a lot of people, uh, they prefer being in a studio and, and it's like supposed to be, you know, the, you get the benefits of all of that. Uh, but for me, I, I, I prefer being on the ground. I prefer covering stories as much as I can. And if I don't get to cover those stories, with RT, I do them by myself. I went to Venezuela to cover the Alex Saab uh, trial. I went to uh, Nicaragua recently for the, um, in, uh, again, the uh, uh, the celebration of the Sandinista uh, revolution, the, the, the fight against the uh, United States intervention where the president was there, Daniel Ortega. And I just went to do that. And I'm going to continue going to different places. When I went to Donbass, I didn't go with RT. I went by myself. And what I do like about them is that they've allowed me to do that. They, you know, they haven't said, you can't say this. You can't go around and, and have your, you know, your your own uh, news show. You can't do this. And I, I like that because I wouldn't be somewhere where I'm, you know, told to not to talk about things. And one of the last things I want to point out about working with RT is uh, a lot of the times it's accused of being a pro entirely pro Kremlin pro Putin uh, there are so many people I work with particularly the young ones who are not pro Putin and they still work there and they, they you know and you can tell and so I uh, me and a couple other co-workers are some of the most you know 
anti-Western people there more than any of these Russians. So this idea that Russians hate the West, that Russians are all uh, spewing Putin propaganda, that, you know, RT only gives one perspective, it's completely false. If anything, they they still allow the Western perspective. They're very careful uh, because they don't want to seem too pro-Russian. But I mean, it's just so funny, like how they get accused of this. It's almost the opposite. And I wish that they were more critical sometimes. Uh, so it's, yeah, that, I think that's some of the things I want highlight. Brilliant. Eva, any comments? Um, just briefly, uh, I started contributing op-eds to RT in, I believe it was 2013. So I was writing then about Gaza and Israeli's policies, um, uh, targeting fishers, targeting farmers, the wars, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, um, I guess just what I would point out is that um, I've never worked for a uh, Western corporate media, so I don't know personally how it works, but my understanding is they're most journalists are given their assignments. They're told basically what, you know, whether it's from Reuters, AP or whatever, what the, the the bulk of their story is going to be. And then as we've already discussed in this conversation in general, maybe not all, but in general, uh, then then um, information or interviews are cherry picked uh, to suit that narrative. And uh, that's not the the op-eds I've, I've written, uh, almost a hundred op-eds over the years for RT. And the way, uh, I've approached it, and my understanding, I, I can't speak for all op-ed uh, authors, but I think Vanessa could probably chime in about this, is that I pitch an article, a subject that I want to write about, and then it's determined whether or not, mainly whether or not it's newsworthy or not, and you know that's the way the media works. But I'm not dictated how to write or what to write. There have been maybe two occasions where it's been suggested, hey, this is a subject you've written about before, this, you know, Venezuela or, or, or Palestine or elsewhere. Are you interested in writing about this particular issue? But it's never been forced down my throat. Um, and generally, I write about things that I have more firsthand knowledge of uh, than, I than you know, issues that I'm not very well researched on. And that's fine. Like, uh, for, for me, RT has been a platform where, uh, I have not been censored. I can write what I want to write. There been uh, there was one editor who made some changes a couple of times, and then I I said to that particular editor, no, that's not what I mean. But that was not a top down policy. That was just the one perspective of this one particular editor, and they were they were able to you know listen to what I had to say, and, and we came to an understanding. So whatever I've published in RT has been my words, my thoughts not dictated from the Kremlin or top down at all, but vice versa. And I'm, 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 am very grateful for the platform. They have a massive platform, even though they are very much censored in the West. Um, and I, I can't think of a platform in the West uh, equal to RT where I could write exactly what I think or what I've experienced. And just, I guess, in closing, um, I mentioned uh, 2017, these two Canadian uh, journalists that came to one of my lectures, and one of them was with La Presse. Um, and she went on to smear me, and that's fine, whatever. But the interesting thing about that is at that uh, lecture, uh, a journalist who had been with La Presse and who had been in Iraq, in Iraq excuse me, when the um, uh, NATO forces invaded, he wrote a very long article back then. He said it was, you know, prior to being able to just whip it off on the internet. He had a very difficult time getting the article to his editor, the same person who went on to write a smear about me. And he said she cut it down from what was around 1,400 words to three or 400 words and completely changed the tone of his article from uh, the Iraqis do not welcome the, the invading forces to the opposite of that. And I can honestly say I have not had that experience in RT. And um, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm also like Fee was saying, I still, I contribute to a variety of sites I have over the years, primarily now it's RT and covert action, but um, I've never been restricted, uh, you know, in terms of where I contribute. And I, I also appreciate that because I think that, I don't know how it is uh, if you're um, affiliated with Western corporate media, but um, I'm, I'm glad that I'm able to express myself in my, you know, on my Telegram channel and YouTube on uh, other um, news sites and as well at RT where, uh, again, I appreciate the fact that I can write uh, honestly about my experiences or thoughts there. I think the only thing that I would add is I've had the same experience in the sense that even when I've been mildly critical of Russian policy in Syria, for example, I haven't had it edited out um, at all. I think there was only one occasion when I was asked to remove a criticism of Erdogan because Russia, uh, the president of Turkey, when I think Russia was uh, in the midst of very delicate negotiations <laughs> with them, and I mean, the, the nice thing is, even though they did ask me to take that out, they explained why. And they, they actually said to me, look, if you want to write about this in greater detail at a later time, it's fine. You can come back and, and do it. So I think that's the difference. You are given really a huge amount of free reign to express yourself and to express your experiences, particularly, of course, on the ground. Um, and another point that I wanted to make, and I know Eva's made this before also, you know, people, um, Western journalists tend to levy this criticism at us all the time that we, we would just still be, you know, obscure bloggers if Russia hadn't amplified our work. It, it's Russia basically put us up on, on the podium and made us who we are, et cetera, because it serves their purpose. This is quite extraordinary when you, this is total projection because Fee mentioned about, you know, the Pulitzer Prize, the, the so on, all these prizes, this entire kind of incentive complex that, that is there to reward journalists that basically do the job they want them to do, right? Um, and to, to say this about us is, is kind of ridiculous because we're not going to do what Russia says, we're going to do what we believe in our individual con consciences to be right. Now, what is what um, Russia did do is to enable those voices that we were transmitting. It's not our stories that we were transmitting or are transmitting. It's the stories that are being silenced. Even the whole white helmet, um, you know, investigation was being completely dismissed and silenced in the West. And yes, Russia gave that oxygen. It allowed it to be heard. But actually, that doesn't really serve us because what happens is that then we just have years and years of vilification by Western media, governments, uh, security agencies, et cetera, right? And even, you know, we're all, I think, on, on the kill list, on the Marotorets list, et cetera. We've, I've been threatened with sanctions. So we don't benefit from this perceived relationship with Russia. But who benefits are those voices that have been silenced, those victims of yet another Western intervention, military adventurism, sponsorship of terrorism that is raping their relatives, stealing their children, burning their houses, et cetera. 
right? Those people are finally given a voice. And I'm perfectly happy to say thank you to Russian media, to RT, thank you to Russia at the UN for actually enabling that information to get out there. I don't have any problem with doing that. We are sadly out of time. and But I want to say thank you very much to all three of you. This has been really interesting for me to sit and listen to, to you speak. Eva, let's start with you. How do people, obviously RT blocked in the UK, absolutely, as it is in Europe and the United States. How, how do people um, uh, get to, to see and hear what, you, what you're reporting? Oh, um, thanks, Mike. Um, well, I guess my Telegram channel, my blog, um, I can. I don't know if you want me to spell out the channel or I'll, you'll just post links, but my Telegram and my blog are where I'm, uh, blog is basically just used to republish interviews such as this and things I've written. Telegram is where I'm most active. And then I suppose Twitter would be the next. And Fiorella? Um, you can find me on Twitter, Fiorella Isabel M., you can find me on Telegram, Fiorella in Moscow. Uh, you can find me on YouTube. I uh, do the show, The Convo Couch, as well, Tuesdays and Thursdays now. And you can also find me on RT if you have a VPN, which you should have a VPN. Um, and I usually either I'm presenting or, or corresponding. So, Okay, and Vanessa? Um, well, UK column. <laughs> and um, my Substack now is probably my preferred platform. I do have Patreon, um, Telegram, Twitter, and I'm still kind of hanging on to YouTube. Okay, and we will put uh, links to all of that uh, in the notes under this uh, when we put it on the website. So I'm going to say thank you very much to all three of you once again. I hope we can do this again in the not too distant future uh, because I think we've got lots of other uh, topics to touch on, but uh, thank you very much, all three.